welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the special year-end episode looking at some highlights from 2021, which is, again, this year, and in different ways and some of the same ways, a strange endeavor just because it's been such a mix of what's in theaters, what's on streaming. But there has been a, a definite critical mass of, of things that have, have come out that have been pretty incredible. And for this conversation, I'm very pleased to be joined by Amy, Amy Talon. Welcome. Welcome back, Amy. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. And I'm so glad you invited me to be on the summary of the year episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So if anyone missed, you know, part of the year, you just have to listen to this episode. And uh, I think you'll, you'll, you'll do fine, uh, if, at least in terms of getting, you know, I think five to ten movies that you definitely should have seen if you haven't already. And a couple that you should never think of seeing. <laughs> well, yes, we'll we'll get to we'll get to that. But I mean, in terms of just looking over the year in general, you know, having just kind of compiled this list for Screen Slate, which involved looking at a lot of people's ballots, I was sort of pleasantly surprised at the differences between the lists uh, in in this selection. Just from list to list, I would consistently find you know a couple of new things that was weren't in the last list. So I, I would just hazard to say that maybe people were kind of finding their way on their own a little bit more this year. You know, people kind of plot their own paths. Yeah, I think that there were a lot of really good movies, which surprised me in the end to feel that yeah. way. But um, people found movies in different ways. And I did most of my looking online, but toward the end of the year, uh, largely because of the courtesy of Netflix. Uh, and I don't know, uh, certain publicists who made sure that they had pretty safe critic screenings. I got to see a lot on the screen. Don't know if I overvalue what I saw on the screen just because it was so good to be back looking at a big screen, but I don't think so. So I've got a lot because yeah. I looked at a lot more films this year than I would have. Yeah. I, I mean, I had a similar experience just when I got to the end. I didn't have the usual, like, oh, God, I have to catch up on five to ten films and, and you know, pretend I saw them four months ago. I really <laughs> found, I somehow found I'd seen, um, you know, um, the things I, I, I was hoping to consider, except for the ones that were just not available at all. I didn't see, like, the Matrix sequel, which, you know, what can I say? Uh, I, I was I was curious to, to, to see, especially after a year that was so virtual in some ways. Uh, somehow that seemed like a movie I, I wanted to, to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I didn't I didn't have a lot left by the end of the year, which is, I guess, just a product of not having much else to do. <laughs> <than watch the movie. laughs> so, but I mean, I think one of those. You know, isn't the thing that has the footprint of a Netflix movie, but I guess it, it's available on a movie now. But we, I risk we both figured out that we both liked it, Azor or Azor. And it's funny because it's a movie that it's a nice enough and kind of Tony enough looking movie that it could be something that would be talked about, um, you know, in the fall alongside uh, prestige dramas, if any of them existed anymore. But I was a real fan of this one. And, and you did you see it? I saw it online, and I can't remember if someone sent it to me. Or mm -hmm. I saw it in Toronto, maybe. Or um, I don't remember where I saw it. It's a first film. And he is 
I think, just an absolutely brilliant director. I was just knocked out about it. And then I saw it on a bunch of best film lists by critics that I think are really smart critics. So Mm. it it wasn't a film that went unseen. Uh, Somehow it got a lot of good kind of attention. But it's one of the films that I, I really want to see what his next film is going to be. And that's kind of rare for me now that I would care if someone made another film. <laughs> but I right. really want to see what his next film is. Yeah. I mean, the subject of Fazor is, it's one, it's a topic that's been dealt with before, but I don't think it's it's ever really reached this level of, of realism. I mean, it's set in, I guess, basically Argentina during the dictatorship. I mean, I'm not going to rehash the whole movie, but I just think it's interesting because it's a, it's a, subject that has been sort of treated in in terms of melodrama or in terms of or kind of filtered through the various you know arty ways you might look at that whether it's like in terms Mm -hmm. of memory or like in terms of just kind of obscure sense of menace uh in this case it's like very very grounded in like money in money yeah (laughs) money um that's what's so great about it the director is swiss and i think this is one of the most damning movies about Swiss banking neutrality that I've ever seen because he's a Swiss banker. And in the middle of the hunter, he goes because his colleague has somehow been disappeared. And all the very rich people are very nervous about what's going to happen to their wealth. I mean, it's a movie that is extraordinary just in terms of money and who is pulling the strings and it implicates the church and there are no good guys in this movie although some of the rich people are just kind of pathetic because they trusted the banks and now they think they are going to lose everything if not die Mm. and you don't know where this guy is going to come out in this I mean, he's a kind of cipher, and so is his wife. The movie has such, I don't want to say cool, it is one of the coldest movies I've ever seen. I mean, mm. you can just see the dry eye smoke coming off the screen. <laughs> yeah, it's really true. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's ice cold. And yeah, and just seeing the, the wealthy be kind of bored with their wealth and power and only makes it colder in a way. And I mean, it's it's just interesting also because of the money and, and just a movie about how power works. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that's so directly about the, the workings of it on, on a very person-to-person level and the level of just kind of personal diplomacy and backroom dealings. It's so easy for that sort of thing to tilt over into the needs of suspense or drama. But in this case, it it, it, it doesn't. It did make me think of another movie. I forget what you thought about this one from last year, which was, which actually maybe only was released this year, but was very unpopular um, oh. among critics. New Order. Oh, I never saw it. I mean, I read, I read it as a movie about kind of co-opted revolution that then kind of just reinstalls a, a new kind of like power dictatorship at the end. But anyway, that that sort of also came to mind. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was good to start off talking with, with Azor because it's a sort of movie I, I would love if it somehow broke even 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 wider but it's good that it did get out there at all and it also is a good movie to stream 
because mm-hmm. while it's extremely well made and the period stuff is just really accurate, it's not mm-hmm. in your face and you don't have to see it on a big screen. It's true, yeah. I think it's great. The colors are also really well controlled and uh, yeah, everything about it uh, is kind of remarkable. I mean, I hope he doesn't, it's a sort of thing where I hope the director doesn't get you know, swallowed up by some streamer for a series uh, before he gets to, you know, craft a couple more features. Actually, I did interview him uh, for Filmmaker Magazine. And uh-huh. I, I, you know, I asked him the obligatory, what are you, what are you doing next? And he's, he said something really interesting. It was a, a drama set at another interesting turning point in history. And that was like the immediate aftermath of the Soviet Union dissolving. Um, uh-huh. but not, but not within the Soviet Union. It sounded like it sounded like it was a drama, maybe like, maybe in Switzerland or Geneva, but I'm, I'm sure he'll do something interesting with that as well. Uh, and it's on Andreas Fontana. And where is it streaming now? Is it on movie? Azor is on movie in the U S. So if you have a movie membership, that's, yeah, that's free. Um, and yeah, just a brief shout out to movie, which I've, I've dipped into now and again and have always found something interesting. I think they kind of, they tend to like foreground the more festival film section a little bit, but there's Uh a lot uh, in there. And one thing I was pleased to see is that next month, January, The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet, which is a great Sundance movie, Sundance 2021 movie that sort of just seemed to disappear, uh, will apparently be streaming on movie next month. You know, it's the kind of movie that if it was a first or second movie, it would have been in New Directors or it would have been uh, mentioned like that. But it's actually her fourth movie. And I thought it was so good. I investigated all her other movies that I could find on Amazon. And this Mm -hmm. is far the best thing she's ever done. I mean, her movies are good, but this Mm -hmm. is so much above that. And it stars her brother. And basically, it's... You know, it was made before the pandemic, but it absolutely predicted the pandemic. (laughs) And I mean, I think the reason that people don't notice this movie is it has a protagonist who's basically a nice guy, (laughs) you know, and a kind of kind guy. And he's just not particularly ambitious in a particular direction. And so he goes along from situation to situation and job to job. And he's obviously middle class. I mean, he's not impoverished. And so he has possible choices. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I I just thought this was a wonderful movie. It's it's black and white. Mm -hmm. I mean, made obviously on pennies and really succeeds because of the central character, I think. Yeah. Just such an unusual central character. Yeah, I, I agree. And and a character that, yeah, he's, he's decent. And, and at the beginning, you almost think that somehow he's going to be the brunt of like an ongoing joke in the movie because he's sort of hapless. Like, I think he like loses his job in the first 10, 15 minutes. Um, yep. And, but but it, that's not how it plays out. And, and the movie also is uh, one of the greatest movies this year in terms of how it compresses time because I forget the exact span of time but it, it goes it must be five years but you can't tell yeah yeah um you know into a relationship and having a child um but it's yeah it's pretty 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 interesting um yeah and there is a without giving away exactly how they portray it there is 
this amazing echo <laughs> of yeah our, our so-called lifestyle right now <laughs> uh, of, of global scourge uh, going on in the movie. But yeah, the dog who wouldn't be quiet, um, which sort of makes me think of whether there are other movies from, I don't know, festivals this past year, which have not managed to surface. But did anything leap to mind for you? Um, yeah, uh, there was a movie I liked very much called Wood and Water. That was a new director's. Oh, yeah. Also a first film by... Um, Jonas Bach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of disappeared. And then some films that I thought were, you know, not going to make it anywhere got picked up at the last minute. So I don't know. Mm. There are so many films getting picked up that should not be picked up that it's (laughs) that that's the worst part of what's out there. You know, you can't that distributors buy films now in packages of 10. I mean, Mm. they essentially buy product. Mm. Um from sales agents. They've always done that, but now it's more than ever. Huh. Interesting. Which seems like an especially risky way to, to proceed now when, when just distribution is such a such an unpredictable prospect right now, or timing of it and when is gonna be a good time for something to emerge or not. Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah, so those those are uh, those are a couple titles, but I mean I think for both of us uh, and for apparently Everyone, which is kind of one point I want to touch on, a big film has been uh, Drive My Car by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. Um, and I guess I just want to say, I mean, for starters, I mean, I just want to acknowledge that this this is kind of surprising, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the kind of, not necessarily critical acclaim for it, but like really widespread critical acclaim for, acclaim for it and, and like awards. And like from audiences, like a friend... A really good friend who's very smart and knows a lot about movies but doesn't go to many mm-hmm. just texted me 10 minutes ago saying, just saw Drive My Car. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it's, I have to say it's a sort of, it's a sort of movie that <laughs> I know it's a cliche, but like definitely, you know, gave me some more faith in, in the, I don't know, <laughs> the future of movies. Because just when you were, would think that people, you know, would not have the patience for this movie. I mean, it's exactly the sort of thing where you can imagine if it didn't succeed, you say, oh, you know, it kind of develops slowly. Um, it's it's not like kind of flashily emotive or something. Um, the, the the quality of filmmaking is, is, not, well, is not in your face, you know. Um, I don't know. Are there any reasons you could think that it would not? But it just really seems to, to grow on, on people mm-hmm. um, as it goes along. And I, I wonder if part of it is just the theme that it has of, of grief and, and regret. I mean, just maybe it's just sort of, it's sort of cathartic for people. Um, I mean, you could, it's hard, it's kind of, maybe it's probably dumb of me to try to like psychoanalyze any year, but I, I just wonder if there's something about that, that it's, it's like this, this release for you by the end of it. Uh, that's, that's at least how I kind of felt the movie. You just get to the end, the, you know, the main character is standing there with another main character and, and they're just they just have this moment and at, at that point it's just we will work uncle vanya yes we will see the i mean it works because of uncle vanya frankly for me mm-hmm. um uh i mean in part the film by the second it's in thirds and by the second third they are rehearsing a production of uncle vanya and 
it's very complicated in terms of getting together this productions. People speak different languages. Uh, one of the actors is mute. The actors, actors and actresses are cast really against type. And the director is pretty much an asshole. And he, he's been an asshole in the first part of the film. He's still an asshole in the second part of the film. But by the end, he's not an asshole. And he's not an asshole because there's a character. Uh, and she made the film for me. Uh, mm. She was the film for me. An actor who plays the driver. And just an absolutely great actor. And yeah. she's playing the Sonia character from Uncle Vanya, really, it, because they're not only doing Uncle Vanya, but the film narrative is playing off of Uncle Vanya. Mm -hmm. And she takes over the film in the third, last third. So I didn't even know when I was voting to nominate her for uh, Toko Miura, mm. is her name. Uh, and I didn't know whether to nominate her for a lead actor or a supporting actor because the last third of the film belongs to her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was just really knocked out by it. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. It's You've probably noticed a name that directors love to drop in interviews uh, or and, and press kits love to use is Chekhov. Like, I mean, yeah. you, you can't, you can't, you can't throw a stone without hitting um, some, some press kit that's, that's citing Chekhov and, so yeah, it's it's also kind of gratifying to see a movie that actually is able to use a Chekhov text like like this. Yeah, I mean it's not it's also not a movie that sort of is guiding you necessarily. I mean it's kind of fun to have a title like Drive My Car. It's not a movie that is not like driven. It it, it kind of, it also surprises you with its developments. And yeah, the, the the main character is kind of a jerk, but in the beginning they kind of throw you off balance because he he has this tragedy with his wife, but it's not steering you a certain way to feel about. How to feel about him yeah and then to think i mean the other thing is also that the same director had another movie out this fall which <laughs> you know uh, wheel of fortune and fantasy and I, you know when that happened like I, I have to say i was sort of worried i was like oh no is this going to be the sort of thing where this director has two movies which are actually both really good but they're somehow going to cancel each other out or people are going to be confused or any number of those things could happen but fortunately it did not happen. Yeah, I mean, I thought Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy was a very good movie. And actually, I was a person who really loathed Asako 1 and 2. I remember. I just <laughs> thought, this is a piece of shit. I mean, <laughs> and only people under 18 would like this movie or something. I don't know. But um, And so I seldom change my mind like this. So I was open to it because I liked Happy Hour. Yeah. I thought Happy Hour was a really promising movie, even though it was too long. Yeah. Drive My Car is quite long. It's well over two hours. I think it's just about three hours, yeah. Yeah, but it goes by like 10 minutes. Yeah. And, that, and, and it's not driven by narrative conflict. So you think, why is that? And it's not a road movie, mm -hmm. even though a lot, about half of it does take place in a car. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're both glad that this has more than survived a pandemic release environment, but is thriving. But you know, actually, that made me think. Uh, just while we were talking about another movie, that yeah, I sort of wonder what happened. We don't have to talk too much about it, but I'm just curious what what you think of Annette. 
um, which I think you said something like Amazon was, it, it was sort of Oh, like- no, what I said is it was made by the old Amazon. I mean, went into production when Ted Hope was there. And right. that Amazon probably in the future will not make another art movie like this. Right. You know, it is a kind of wild art movie. Yeah. And I think some of it is great. And in the end, I have to say that I don't like the Sparks very much. And they wrote the score and the lyrics, and they've never, never excited me with their music. So it's a musical with music that is kind of second rate, except for the first number, Mm. and just some great filmmaking. And, you know, I wish the music were better. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I haven't seen West Life Story, and I never will. I did see West Side Story. I, I was going to just drop it in at some point. Um, I have to say I, I enjoyed it, but it probably just had more to do with, I mean, the musical itself. I mean, I did I did appreciate it, Spielberg, knowing how to move the camera and move it in relation to mm-hmm. people performing. Um, and also, mm-hmm. you know, being able to direct uh, dramatic scenes. Um, I kind of think it was pretty far superior to In the Heights from earlier in the year. Just thinking the two together because it definitely felt like In the Heights was kind of like a, an attempt to retell a New York story like that. But we don't have to talk about West Side Story or Nightmare Alley. Did you have a chance to see that one? Or I saw the trailer. I wouldn't go near it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's I'm glad. We don't, yeah, we don't have to talk about that uh, either because <laughs> I don't have much to say about it. But not a musical, but a movie based on sound is Moria. And I don't think we've talked about Memoria yet. I, I think we yeah we went to the screening together, right? We to screen, yeah. yeah, I went to two screenings, but I the great one was at Dolby on Fifty Fifth Street because that's the sound at Dolby is incredible, and the sound in this movie is incredible, and that's why uh, Neon decided not to stream it. Mm. And I said, it's if you play the sound at the level it has to be played at, you would get evicted from wherever you live. <laughs> Right. Not constantly all through it, but just at these certain moments. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it kind of just changes your body in an instant and your eardrums. And it would be terrible if you were listening through headphones, which I actually did because Neon broke down and sent critic screeners. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. They promised they wouldn't, but they did. Yeah. Uh, and it's not good watching it that way. Yeah. Really not. Yeah. It needs to live in a space. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I, ideally old movies are living or filling uh, a space, but that one especially, I, I'm sure people know what it's about, but just Tilda Swinton plays a character who the first few minutes she's woken up by, by a sound. Um, and then the rest of the movie is more or less her yeah, tracing what that sound might be and, and, and how it's uh, affecting her. But it's this sound... I don't know how to describe it. It's somewhere between like a clunk and a, and a thunk. She describes it in the film. And it actually, it's like on Super 8 or cheap video. You couldn't record it very well. It's like in James Nair's experimental video pendulum. It's a pendulum that swings, that he constructed that swings over a whole street. And at the end is a concrete ball. Oh. And every time the concrete ball hits something, there is this deafening noise. And in the film, she describes it as if uh, a concrete 
ball wrapped in metal was dropped into something like a basin of water. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's like. That's true. That, yeah, that's, that's in that great scene where she goes to an engineering studio and, and they're trying to... Construct it. Yeah, like reverse engineer what the sound she's hearing is. Yeah, and what's so funny in the film is when they finally get it, he goes to a file of, you know, the file, the thing that you just buy online, movie sound effects. And that's the basis of it, and then they sweeten it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, it's, um, to think of it in terms of his movies as well, it's like differently hypnotic in terms of his his other movies. Like his other movies have had a flow to them. Um, I, I think that Tilda Swinton really creates something different. And also that it's Columbia, uh, that it's Bogota. Uh, I mean, he has gotten out of his own country and language for the first time. Yeah. And that really matters in the movie. Yeah. Um, that in a way, the country is as mysterious to him as it is to her. But, you know, he had this thing. I mean, I got the the Memoria book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fireflies. And he, in the book, he says that he suffered from this syndrome that would wake him up in the middle of the night, where exactly as it does her, mm-hmm. where you hear this incredibly loud sound in your head. And it has a name, this syndrome. And while he was making the movie, it went away. Mm. By making the movie, he was able to get rid of it. So I think that's extraordinary. Yeah. And it's, it's funny also because in the movie, I mean, at one point she's going to, to a doctor for some kind of relief of some sort. She wants Xanax. <laughs> she wants a Xanax, yeah. And the, yeah, the doctor realizes that and, and won't, won't give it. But there's, there's also like a great couple of lines where the doctor explains why that stuff is just no good. <laughs> like you just... It's, it's not good for living, period. And she'll also explain, she asks her if she, she's ever seen Salvador Dali's paintings. Right. And Salvador Dali, the doctor said, I really understood Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's this odd text that's really about magical realism, mm-hmm. uh, but it is kind of mixed into surrealism and dreams. And then what happens in you know, the last half, the last section of the movie uh, where she meets this guy who is, um, describes himself as a hard drive, Mm -hmm. a hard disk, he actually says, who remembers absolutely everything and can hear voices and sounds in stones and in the natural world of people who lived centuries ago. And he decides that she's his antenna. Mm. It's really quite, it's one of the only transcendent experiences I've had in a movie in a long time, Memoria, Mm. by the end of it. And I had one other transcendent experience, which was Arthur Jaffa's installation, uh, which is also about sound. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. I, I unfortunately did not, I did not see it. Well, it's a visual and sound installation, and I'll spell it because I'm not sure how to pronounce it, nor does anyone. Uh, A-G-H-D-R-A, 
And like a lot of Arthur Davis titles, it's a made up word, mm -hmm. but it has a little bit to do with maybe uh, Godzilla, <laughs> which is also a made up word. Um, the image is totally produced digitally from scratch. I mean, there was no photographic input into this image. And it is an image of, a, of the sea totally made of something like magma, like rocks of lava mm. uh, that move in waves and swells and backward and forward and fill for most of it at least four-fifths of the screen. And above it is a, a yellow-orange brilliant sun that is setting, although some people think it's rising, mm. in a Turner-like sky with, you know, clouds and color going across. And the piece itself, although it only has, I think, 20 minutes of imagery that then is repeated in various mathematical formulations. It is abstract, but it looks like an ocean after the end of the world uh, when blackness has just taken over the world. As if, for me, as if Godzilla, when he sinks into the ocean at the end of mm -hmm. one of those movies, mm -hmm. as if the scales on his back had metastasized and s taken over all of it. Um, but anyway, blackness. Wow. Uh, and he did that with the effects studio in France that did the effects for the first Matrix. Huh. But the sound is really what makes the piece for me, because the sound he mixed himself or remixed through maybe 10 layers Black groups and soloists from dance records, really, from the 70s and early 80s, like the Isley Brothers and Roberta Flack. Mm. But they come at you incredibly loud. It, that's why I think of the two movies together. Like they're coming at you through memory tunnels and totally distorted because they're so slowed down or speeded up that you can't recognize the voices. And sometimes you can remember the words and the feelings associated with them, but they're so fragmented. And so, you know, when I wrote about it, I said it was like being in a juke joints overlooking the Gulf where they're playing warp 45s and on turntables that don't work. And it's, the end of the world. I, I just think it's an absolutely great work. And of course, it has something to do with Michael Snow's wavelength, both in terms of that the last image in Michael Snow's wavelength, this is photograph of waves, mm -hmm. um, which is also associated with the end, but that's with the end of your life or my life. I don't know. I just think it's an absolutely great I think it's masterwork. Wait, where is that? Um, where is that again? Well, it has been at what used to be Gavin Brown's Harlem Gallery, mm -hmm. which that building has been sold, but Gavin is using it for just this piece. And it's there through this Sunday. It's been up since the end of November. It's there noon to eight on Saturday and noon to eight on Sunday 
there's a docent. He takes you upstairs because it's a big warehouse and that's the only thing in it. And it's on the third floor. So that's all part of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where it'll turn up again because it really does need a special space. I mean, I kind of think it will, you know, be in some huge museum show, but not necessarily mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It was. Well, it's funny the feeling of this this onrush of memories that was kind of in my head. That sensation, just thinking about the ending of Memoria, Tilda Swinton, and and this kind of transcendent guys. They're in this room, but there's this feeling of, of intensity to to the present and the presence. Their presence. I don't know how to describe it. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there are also like these kind of faintly heard transmissions uh, at that point as well. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, Wavelength just played in the Michael Snow retrospective at the anthology, and the sine wave that runs all through Wavelength and then cycles uh, through its whole curve at the end uh, is also part of this rethinking sound and image relationships in Mm. films, Mm. um, which I think is so extraordinary. And the possibility of sound in digital is so much better and more complex than it was in 16 millimeter because 16 millimeter soundtracks just didn't carry very much sound at all. And 35 was better, but not that much better. Mm -hmm. It's the introduction of digital sound that is now so extraordinary in movies when it's used well. Yeah. Well, uh, two things on on that. One is just about sound. Kind of in thinking about um, the way sometimes people watch movies at home, just the fact that a lot of people watch, you know, while on their phones, just to put it bluntly. And (laughs) and I'm I'm not not here to, like, bash that for, like, not paying attention to what's on the movie. But it sort of makes me think that it becomes, it kind of changes the experience in that you're not literally not looking at the screen as much, the TV uh-huh. screen. So I, I don't know. I wonder if there's something going on about how you experience the sound because you're sort of tuned in to hearing what's what the movie is while looking what's on your phone. I don't know. I wonder how it's working in people's brains a little bit. The interweaving of looking through stuff on your phone, following what's on the TV if it's a movie, through the sound and only tuning in on on and off. Oh, I I think it's really important. You know, the rules about when independent filmmakers were trying to make movies that would be seen on PBS or Mm. the first rule everyone had to learn was you cannot have even a quarter of a second of silence because on TV, if you have any silence at all, people will change the channel or they'll think something is broken. <laughs> the sound wow. has to be continuous. That's an absolute rule. Huh. You turn on the tap, it has to keep flowing. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Exactly. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that was, that was just one thing to kind of... But the other thing, since you mentioned the Michael Snow series, I did want to kind of bring it up. Um, I mean, I, I just went to one uh, a few days ago, I guess one of the final ones, catching up with the program of like his earliest shorts. And I, I was just going to mention it in this, in this roundup because these were sold out screenings. Um, and I, another thing that was just kind of put my, put wind in my, in my sails was that, 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 that could happen as well. You know, I mean, you know, anthology, I'm, I'm always glad to see, see things there and, and to see things be sold out there for, 
for these snow programs was just kind of heartening. It, it was enormously, I think, surprising to everyone at Anthology because they don't sell out that often. And people expected that the big films like Wavelength and maybe the Central Region, because it hadn't been seen in so long, mm. would sell out. And they had to do a second screening of Wavelength. But no one expected that the early shorts or those, you know, a couple of middle videos of Michael playing the piano and stuff like that. They all sold out. But do you have any idea who the people were in the audience that you were there with? <laughs> I have no idea. Where did they come from? <laughs> I know. That's that's the thing. Um, and and I, will they come back? I hope they come back. Uh, I mean... I kind of always always love going to anthology because I always I feel like there's always a crowd of like the next generations of people who are going obsessively to things just you know as 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 I did maybe more so uh, I don't know 10 mm -hmm. 15 years ago so it's like oh okay I wonder if also this is one of these kind of irreducible uh, movie experiences it's not like you're going to sit at home and torrent a Michael Snow movie I mean you might I don't even know if they're available I don't know if is it they available? aren't they aren't they aren't so there's that there's the scarcity but also these movies just being so kind of viscerally almost physical sensations um, in, to, to, mm -hmm. to experience and watch them that, you, yeah, you can't really replicate that. And, and it has to be bigger than you. Um, and it has to be room sized. You know, is there, mm -hmm. <laughs> I hadn't seen standard time. That's oh yeah. 360 in the room. That's 360 in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Standard time is really nice. I really like it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Michael Snow is one of those filmmakers, kind of like Chantal Ackerman, that you always feel like the weight of having made a masterpiece like Jean Dielman or a masterpiece like Wavelength early mm. in your filmmaking career. That's such a weight. So, yes, now I say, well, Standard Time is a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if there wasn't Wavelength, I would say Standard Time is a great film. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, I, I was just trying to think what what was before then that that was like that, you know, I mean, uh, uh, using a camera in that way, spinning it around. Well, you know, the central region, which is, is the camera, um, these, they weren't, it, it, they were supposed to be computerized, but the computer didn't work out. But it, it's the camera spinning in unimaginable Ways three hours to film this absolutely empty, empty people landscape in Nova Scotia, uh, which is just an absolutely great film. Yeah. All right, I'm going to say this is the end of the year, and mm -hmm. we're talking about a series of anthology film archives which needs your dollars. Mm -hmm. So if you went to this series or you went to anything in the anthology, consider buying a membership or contributing any little bit you have because anthology needs the goodwill of its audience to survive. Yeah. It's kind of always been a home, a home for me. The only thing I want to say is about the, the snow works is I, I, one time I interviewed Stanley Donnan uh -huh. and he was talking about how he was able to do this differently or do that differently. How he was trying to improve upon early, like the earlier like thirties wave of musicals. And then at the end he, he finally just said, well, you know, Maybe in some ways uh, I was lucky because the snow was still fresh. <laughs> and I, I just always love that. That's great. That's great. You know, um, so for, yeah, for Michael Snow, ironically, um, you know, but it's, it's what you make of it. So yeah, he definitely, the snow was fresh and he made the most of it. 
so yeah, so we just before that we're talking about Moria, and I think another movie that has also been really predominant in, in conversations now is uh, The Power of the Dog, and I think that was your that was your sort of number one movie. For that me. was my number one, and. You know, I the art form list I make at the end of October, and I didn't go to the New York Film Festival, so I hadn't seen so many films like Drive My Car and when I made that list. And mm. The list might have been different, but The Power of the Dog stayed mm. at the top on all my lists. Um, yeah. You know, I ended up writing about it a little bit. You know, I took the opportunity to look at a lot of her previous movies. It kind of uh, cast The Power of the Dog in a, in a, in a different light. And it reminded me of, I mean, not to just like quote interviews, but I, I did get a chance to interview her and it, and she's trying to explain, I asked her like the power of the dog, it feels a little more withholding than some of her past mm-hmm. movies. What, what was it like for you to sort of think through a story that way? Or how did you arrive at that way of approaching it? Finally, she says, I'm a blurter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because the power of the dog is not really a movie where she's a blurter, you know? Um, and, and looking at some, you know, something like in the cut or, you know, or yeah, any, any number, I don't have to, everyone knows her, her movies, a piano or a portrait of a lady or, or even like top of the lake, which I've also been watching. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't feel that there were moments in the power of the dog where there is this great rupture and. Well, it's a film about repression. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the great films about, I mean, a portrait of a lady is a little bit too. But the difference, first of all, is the first film she's made without a woman protagonist. And it's a film, I think, although a lot of people don't see it this way, I just think it's this total damnation of patriarchy. You have four characters Mm. and all of them are twisted and perverse because of patriarchy and patriarchy's enforcement of the binary. So that, I mean, the first question, the first line in the film is, what kind of man would I be if I didn't protect my mother, if I didn't save her? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that question of how do you become a man? What is a man? What is your model of a man? That's what the film is about. And the model is... You're supposed to, any suggestion of anything that has to do with the feminine has to be repressed or ignored or discarded. And so for me, there is a blurt in the film, and it's the scene in the stable Mm -hmm. when the um, Benedict Cumberbatch character really can no longer totally ignore or control the desire he feels for this strange young man who has no good feelings toward him. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you know, talking about 360-degree circular shots, that's one of the great ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the anti-vertigo 360. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. That is, that is the blurting, but it, that's, sort of, that's sort of... But uh, totally about repression. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's it's sort of at a climactic point, so it's it's sort of more a naturally climactic point at at, at the end. Um, and the thing you don't realize, or I didn't realize, I think the first time I watched it, is that voiceover in the beginning. That's the Cody Smith McPhee character um, talking. Yeah, 
which when you when I first hear it, I don't, you know, I like voiceovers can't always connect right right away, and you don't know him yet. You, I don't think you meet him for a while. No, and you don't meet him for a while. But I just thought, who is that? Mm-hmm. That's the Norman Bates character mm. because it's Norman Bates who says a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Some, someone needs to ask her that. I should. <laughs> that is funny. Um, so I just thought, what the fuck is this going to be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, then in the end, you know, he he yeah, he's he's managed to pull the rug out from the noxious uh, patriarch in the house and cover his tracks. Well, he's yes, he's done that, but you know, he, he's a psychopath. <laughs> he's a psychopath. <laughs> so the hero is a psychopath. <laughs> Well, and I never think of him as the hero. I think of them as all equally twisted. Mm. And, you know, he doesn't have any moments like the Benedict Cumberbatch character has these moments where these moments of incredible longing and regret Mm. that come out of him almost take the character and the actor by surprise. I mean, Jane Campion is just one of the greatest directors of actors. And that she can find a way so that actors live in front of the camera so that they can surprise themselves, so that it isn't all so thought out and, you know, blocked out Mm. before that something actually can happen like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, he's a great actor, but even great actors... Not many of them can do that. Yeah. And, and yeah, and he's, he's definitely an actor that's, I mean, sometimes in danger of kind of falling back on, I don't know, what people bring to him, what people bring to, to seeing him to a certain extent. Um, but when you're saying that, I immediately flash back to uh, The Portrait of a Lady and, and kind of introducing Nicole Kidman in that movie, which is still such a mind-blowing moment, this kind of track into her where she's just just kind of thrumming with energy. Do you remember that in the, in the beginning of that? Is she, is she wearing a dress with a train and she's go, she's, outside. she's outside? I always remember yeah. that shot. Mm-hmm. And the dress has a little train and you see her at a certain point, she turns her back to the camera and it's like the camera is tracking her like she's a wild animal. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've mm-hmm. always thought that was just, I mean, she's prey in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She yeah. doesn't want to be prey, but she is prey. And I always thought it, that was a great moment for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, well, and, well one other thing I wanted, to, I wanted to ask about with, with The Power of the Dog is, because, I mean, I ended up writing about, you know, I was asked to write about the ending um, uh-huh. and kind of basically explain it um, or explain what I thought it was about. And But then it, what was interesting is looking at people's reactions to the movie and what fascinated me about the movie is that to some people, this was a movie, they watched it and they were like, ah, I don't quite catch that. What, what happened at the end? And the other people were like, how could you not catch this? It was so obvious. Yeah. And, the, and there's another group of people that says, I don't think you should have put the lariat under the bed because that was just too much. And, you know, <laughs> like doubling down on, did you see it? Do you right. know? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So there are really three schools of thought about this. It's true. Right? It's strange. I mean, and it's it's funny because it's people bring different ideas of what subtlety is, I guess, um, and or different levels or different ideas. I, I I don't know. I began to be fascinated by it because 
people bring different ideas of what a gesture should be or what is too much of a gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this real uh, Rorschach test about, yeah, how you think a, a good movie should function or how it should be put together. I mean, I think people have forgotten. I Maybe they never knew how to look at movies mm. that don't have that when they don't have dialogue that tells you everything that you're supposed to know. Mm. There's almost no dialogue that tells you anything in this movie yeah. except for that opening voiceover. Yeah. Uh, no, it's so true. That's so true. And I've definitely been feeling that with rewatching the, um, the first season of top of the lake. Mm-hmm. So many series are so padded out now. And, you know, if you miss it, just wait a few minutes, you know. Yep. Something else will be restated for you, re-shown to you. But she does not, she did not write that series <laughs> like that. Um, it's the same no. thing. Like, you have to be watching and you will miss something. Um, and it's already, yeah, so entangled. And then also another thing that was really exciting re-watching the movies was her opening. I mean, she has to be one of the great, movie openers every single one of those movies uh just has some great like first two minutes and pure visual storytelling but uh well one more movie just because you mentioned that you know the silly thing with these lists is that we're, we're asked to do them so early um and i know one movie mm-hmm. that you caught up with later and sort of wished you had been seen earlier was uh the rod jude movie bad luck banging right Bad luck banging loony porn. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a terrific movie. It's also, it's interesting. It's, there are all these movies in, within clear three-act structures. Mm. Like uh, Memorial also has a clear three-act structure, and so does Drive My Car. Mm-hmm. And this one does too. It has the clearest three-act structure. Uh, so it begins <laughs> with these... Two people in there in Romania, which is just looks like, oh, my God, if you thought the Soviet Union was a terrible place to live, (laughs) living in Bucharest now is just awful. And so to entertain themselves and to be a little lively, they video, you know, they make a a phone thing of them having sex in this incredibly elaborate way, you know, like... (laughs) I mean, hilarious uh, what they've got to do to turn themselves on. And the husband, by mistake, sends it out. And the woman works in this very, um, in a private school that's, this is a Catholic country, mm-hmm. and um, where she is immediately knows that her career is in jeopardy. And so then in the second act, she just walks around the city, which is just the worst place, doing various mundane errands, you know, like shopping errands. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you just see why life is just so deadening and depressing. And, and the more you see that, the greater the loony form tape seems to be and the more <laughs> it makes you laugh. Right. <laughs> and then she gets to this where they call her up to explain at school to the parents and teachers council what this is and why they shouldn't fire her for putting this out on the internet for doing it. And it is absolutely, I mean, he didn't know this, but all the stuff that's going on on in school boards in Texas mm. and in other Republican states, it's exactly this. Yeah. 
and I just thought he just landed on this at this moment. So it's not just about Romania, it's about the United States. Yeah. And it's funny, this movie. I mean, it's grotesquely funny. No, and, and I think that the humor is so is so so important too because it, it, it you never feel like the movie is is preaching to you one way or another about what's what's going on and I I just love how every part of the movie <laughs> kind of militates against that you know you have you have like the, this scandalous beginning but then he immediately you know has her just walking around as he's in the most mundane circumstances but yeah at the end it's it's just the life as twitter feed basically you know yeah and i guess that's something that he's kind of been working on that that kind of mutual assured destruction <laughs> of, uh-huh. of of political views that where where it just ends up being a total mess you know without the movie assuming the worst of what people will do or think but just kind of following out people's impulses <laughs> uh-huh the the audience of of parents are just they're also each like so like self-absorbed and petty and like they just have each different reasons that they are going to tear her apart or or just are oblivious mm-hmm. and yeah it's it's the soviet union except like without the ideals you know like the same kind of cronyism and everything <laughs> but if there's there's no veneer that oh this is in service to something greater but the, <laughs> the greatest part is that you know, before you feel like satisfied and 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 too complacent of, and about what he does in that section, it has the greatest like freeze frame last shot, which I don't want to spoil. It's just just no, don't spoil yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's just right. great. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. yeah, the whole movie is so there's just like a real just verve uh, to it. It's it's really good. So I hope that doesn't disappear. I, I also some part of me hopes that it does end up being like one of the you know Oscar. <laughs> foreign language nominees because I want to see what clip they have to use for, for that. <laughs> that kind of Did they nominate it? Is it on the long list? Um, I don't know if that's come out yet or maybe it will have come out. Um, I don't I don't think it's come out was, as of right now, uh, but I, I do think it's Romania's selection, um, which, is, uh-huh. which is good. Oh, I hear I, I can tell my little tiny story, which I think I told you already, about seeing the movie at the New York Film Festival. And I was just next to like a row of like five or six women, all, all friends. Um, and they, it was the same thing. They just like took the air out of any attempt to like take this as some like sober critique or something. They were just, like, <laughs> they were just, every laugh line was, you know, and, and the ludicrousness of everything was just hitting for them. And it was really great. So I, I, I yeah, thank you, whoever you are. That definitely um, improved the movie for me. Well, We've covered a, a number, uh, a number of movies. So, um, and so far, we've mostly been agreeing. <laughs> so, I think mm-hmm. this might be a good time to to mention a couple of movies. Where, well, I'll just say, it. I think I might like them a bit more than you do. Um, ah, <laughs> but I mean, I'm curious. One of them is a movie that uh, that's the French Dispatch. You you actually didn't finish this, right? Twenty minutes, and I was out. I, yeah, I mean, I just want to defend it. I found it funny. I definitely liked some sections more than other sections. The section with Benicio del Toro as this artist in a prison, um, and his his muse slash manager played by Leia Seydoux. I just found that terrific. Like, I think it's as funny and kind of bittersweet and creatively constructed and put together. There's one lovely part in it where they're trying to show how long he's been in prison. Um, and so he's sitting mm-hmm. there and the previous actor who plays him is sitting there. And then Benicio Del Toro comes in, shakes his hand and the other guy leaves. 
it's just him saying goodbye to his younger self. And I just hadn't seen that as a way of like showing time passing uh, in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, there are all these little things. It's a really dense movie. And that's I, I, part of why I could see like walking out on that basis alone. It throws so much at you in the first 20 minutes. It's, I mean, talk about not having a second of dead air. There's no way. It's almost as if he started editing or, or um, he started like putting that movie together for 20 minutes. And then it was like, oh crap, I can't make the rest of the movie like this. Cause there's, it's just this wall to wall, you know, it's one of those, Wes Anderson, like, let me show you my boat kind of sequences where it's just one mm-hmm. thing after another. But I was unhappy with how people bashed this movie because I would have loved for any movie to have, you know, the production design, the costume design, the the actors, even if they're just doing kind of character turns, the color, the any number, the comp- composition, you know, uh, all of these elements I thought were really beautiful in the movie. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of it was really, really funny. And I think he's just been doomed by a lot of people. There is an emotional core to a lot of it that's there. Like definitely in that artist in the prison one, that's there's also ones where it's just completely absent. And then I feel the hollowness of it. Like I was not a great fan of the 68, Timothy Chalamet is like one of these kid revolutionaries. But yeah, it just, it seems such a waste for this movie to be just, to just disappear um, for, for mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I've, I've sat through a lot <laughs> um, and, I, and I'd happily sit through a couple of parts of that movie that I didn't like um, than, you know, any number of other things that I've sat through. So <laughs> that's my scattershot defense of, of the French Dispatch, which I, I imagine will come back because there is just a, a level of crack to it that I, I feel is, is, is undeniable. But another movie, uh, the other movie, I think that we uh, we don't have to dwell on on the corpse of Wes Anderson. Anyway, he's already making another movie, so no one no one has to cry for him. Well, I hope he doesn't pretend to make it in Paris, and I hope he doesn't <laughs> pretend to make it about really very good writers who he can't touch, who he then takes possession of and turns them into I don't know tree parodies of themselves. Um, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. You know, and I, I'm not a fan in that period of The New Yorker. I never mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I just thought, these people were really smart, even when stylistically, you know, I was the village voice and then there was The New Yorker. But um, mm-hmm. there was just something about Wes Anderson's version of Paris that made me want to bark my croissant. <laughs> Well, I don't think I'm going to improve on that. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So, I mean, that's The French Dispatch. And just wanted to squeeze in one more movie. And that's The Lost Daughter directorial debut for Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, right. And this is also a movie that I liked. Just a quick pocket summary. Uh, Olivia Coleman plays a professor who's on vacation in Greece. There's this noisy family that's bothering her, and then she gets embroiled in what's going on with them and, and other people who are there. But it's also toggles back and forth between that and her life as a young academic. I, I really like the, the kind of fluidly moving between present and past. I do kind of feel like it kind of wrestles itself to a stalemate by the end. Uh, this You were definitely not a fan of this one. No, I was not a fan. And... Let me say, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is a wonderful actor. Mm. And I think beyond being a wonderful actor, she's an extremely smart actor, 
which is pretty rare. I mean, the intelligence of her performances, and she can play intelligent women really well. Mm. Um, and I just found this an incredibly stupid movie. Uh, and the book is not stupid. I mean, it's an adaptation of a Ferrante novel. Right. It's not for one of Ferrante's best novels, but it's a really interesting novel. And, oh, she hired the best people, the best editor working now, uh, the best, for me, cinematographer working now. She just had wonderful, wonderful people working on this movie. So it's really good looking. Mm -hmm. Um, and you might even say that it has a kind of sensuousness or tactility, mm. except it doesn't because I can't believe a bit of it. <laughs> um, because it's a, really a movie about a woman who does something that she regrets. She leaves her husband and her daughters and strikes out on her own, the pretense of her leaving as she's involved with a love affair with an academic. But actually, she just wants to be able to have a room of her own, you know? Mm. Uh, and clearly, we see in this movie that she's felt guilty about this for her entire life, even though nothing happened. They didn't miss her. Her daughters didn't die. Her daughters don't hate her. <laughs> you you go through the whole movie thinking you're going to find out that one of the daughters right. died, That's but true. no, everything is fine, <laughs> except she is so, so masochistic and so guilty that she goes on this vacation and there's this mafia family and she's told it's a mafia family and they're on the beach next to her and they're ruining everything. They're loud. They're bossy. They want her to move away with her umbrella so they can spread out. And you know what any person would have done? They would have said, I'm very sorry, but this is not the place for me. Do you, my nice hotel keeper, know another hotel that I can go to? And that's what you would have done. Like when you find bedbugs in your hotel. This was the equivalent of finding bedbugs in your hotel. But she doesn't. She just goes to the beach every day and then she gets embroiled with them. I mean, I just couldn't believe it the character the actions and it played on the fact that this year and i'm not a mother and i know i have guilt toward my own mother who had guilt about me but i have not experienced guilt about i abandoned my children to have sex i didn't i never experienced that or i didn't want to stay with my children through the pandemic I just wanted to get out of the house. But that's what it plays on. It plays on the feeling of women that, you know, they're just being asked to do too much and they're going to feel guilty about not fulfilling it well for the rest of their lives and they'll end up on the beach with the mafia who do terrible things to them and they'll narrowly escape with their life. Ah! <laughs> stupid, beyond stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's almost as if the character is punishing herself, you know. Yes. So she 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 stays there, and but I mean, it's Olivia Colman is certainly incredible at, at exactly that sort of thing, which is enduring something. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not a fan. Oh, you're not I've a fan. Of her. That's a fan. interesting. I mean, technically, she's a very good actor, mm -hmm. but I'm not a fan. I mean, she never makes me feel anything except mm. oh yeah. 
<laughs> Jesse Buckley plays her younger self. She's an actress I'm kind of curious about. The past is is kind of a reference point. It's not it's not in the same level of vividness as the right. present in it. So it's one of those things where it's hard for a, an actor to come through in the same way. But yeah, that's The Lost Daughter, which that's coming out right around now. I guess it's a very much an end of year. Yeah, I, it comes out this week or it came out this week? I think it comes out... Um, the Next week uh, on Christmas. Oh, great Christmas movie. The anti-Christmas programming. <laughs> <laughs> the Mother's Feel Bad movie. Well, it's interesting. This is a movie where she, she regrets... I guess she regrets stuff she didn't do as well as regrets stuff she did do. And Drive My Car, he regrets stuff that he didn't do, I guess, basically. I don't know. I was just suddenly wondering if these, some of the movies we were talking about are, are a lot kind of orbiting regret in some way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Annette? Well, by the end, he does regret in Annette. Yeah. No one regrets in Power of the Dog. No. They've either triumphed or they're dead. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Or drunk. Or drunk, yeah. Well, you know, another funny thing about the movie is that, I mean, I've tried to parse out the title. Like, I've found myself on different, like, Bible studies websites to try to understand the title. Um, and I've, I've come to think that Jane Campion's understanding of the of the title is different. She's, she's kind of taken it in a, a kind of more interesting direction. Um, I have no idea what how she parses it. I mean, I did go also on the Bible study. <laughs> Yeah. And I could not understand what this was about at all, this phrase. Or... Yeah, it seemed to be something about, I don't know, just sort of like the dark side of the, the earth or something in some vague general way. But but mm-hmm. Campion seems to take that as like an interesting thing, like the kind of raw urges or kind of raw... The id is the power of the dog. Yeah. I mean, the Bible is really more like the, power, the dog is the devil. Right, mm-hmm. The black dogs that come from hell in Shakespeare. Yeah. I remember there was one other... Did you want to talk about... There was one other installation I think you mentioned uh, that was a big highlight. Oh, there's a lot... Yeah, as opposed to all these difficult, painful installations. There's just this (laughs) lovely installation by Anita Thatcher that's at Microscope Gallery, which is 525 West 29th Street. Microscope... Scope used to be a gallery in Brooklyn, and they moved to Chelsea. Mm. And um, they're a gallery that specializes in moving image work. And this installation, this corner, actually showed, the first place it showed in New York was at the New York Film Festival. Uh, Joanne Koch was a huge fan of it. Mm. They set it up in the lobby at, uh, I think, Tully, or maybe in the lobby of uh, the Walter Reed, not sure. Uh, it's called Loose Corner, and it's really about scale and perspective in a way that makes you kind of like Alice in Wonderland, feel mm-hmm. that you are changing side. And the images are absolutely delightful because the, there is a dog, it's like a Scottish terrier that gets enormously big and small and uh, a little girl and a ball, and it has everything to do with movies and their dreamlike, surreal quality, in part because of the way scale can change in close up. And mm. but it's all projected in a corner, oh, wow. so it's also kind of three dimensional. That's great. I love that. Yeah. The 
piece is wonderful. And it's there through the middle of January. Oh, great. Okay, good. The microscope gallery. All right. Well, any parting, parting shot, parting words? <laughs> I think really there was an abundance of riches this year. Mm. Really there was. And uh, for the most part, it made me feel like maybe the world would continue, which is, you know, yeah. continue in maybe a way that's filled with regret, mm -hmm. but that that there was really possibilities of making art. Mm -hmm. So I I felt kind of good about this movie. Yeah, which is not how it at all seemed <laughs> it was going to be. Um, you know, it's it's we go into a year wondering, yeah, would movies be able to exist in the same in the same way? So we can conclude there, uh, and yeah, well, there'll be more to come in the next year, and I hope we can podcast again soon. I think we will be um, at the uh, Sundance Festival in whatever capacity that means. Right. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Yes. Um, I hope we live through the next year. Yes, <laughs> me say? too. That's exactly it. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. Thank you.